0: Jones, we've heard a great deal about you. Have you? Professor of archaeology, expert on the occult, and uh, how does one say it? Obtainer of rare antiquities.
1: Indiana Jones. Always knew someday you'd come walking back through my door.
2: When I was done with Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, there was a reason that I invented the shot of Harrison riding a horse into the sunset, because I thought that brought the curtain down on the trilogy, and then we were all going to move on and mature into other aspects of filmmaking, and I never thought I would ever see Indiana Jones again. Which, by the way, in a sweet, nostalgic way, was fine with me at the time. But there were some people it wasn't fine with. And I think it started with the fans. But I just remember people asking me, when are you making the next Indiana Jones? And that was a question that was not only asked of me, but it was asked of Harrison. And I know it was asked of George Lucas. All of us have been asked that question. Harrison was the person that took it seriously. And he finally called me and said, why don't we make one of these pictures? There's there's a fan base out there that wants it. And I have to give the credit to Harrison for starting the ball rolling, and then for George in working on me to get me to consider the possibility of more stories, or at least one more story. George Lucas had this idea for Indiana Jones, and it was basically, hey, let's do aliens. And he said, this will be like a B-movie. It'll be like those 1950s B-movies, Earth versus Flying Saucers, and all those exploitation movies uh, that were really about government paranoia. Cold War fears and things like that, and Hollywood turned them into invaders from Mars.
3: It was the idea of taking the genre from the 1930s serials, action-adventure serials, to the B-science fiction movies of the 50s and the early 50s. And I said, if we move the whole thing into the 50s, which would be age-appropriate for Harrison, that would be the cinematic equivalent. And I wanted to rest it on a cinematic antecedent like we did with the other one.
4: Clearly, I've chosen the wrong pressure point. Perhaps I can find a more sensitive one. We couldn't
2: do Nazis again, and uh, I wouldn't have done that anyway. But because of the 50s, the other thing about the 50s was the Cold War. And um, the Red Menace, as it used to be known in America, and the threat of nuclear annihilation, nuclear intimidation, that was something that was in the headlines every single day. And so the Russians got the job.
5: Russians, this ain't gonna be easy. Not as easy as it used to be.
4: The skull was stolen from Akator in the 15th century. Whoever returns it to the city City
3: temple will gain control over its powers. I've heard that bedtime story before. What the Indiana Jones movies have always done really well is play with existing mythology and bend it to their storytelling purposes, you know? So everything in it is drawn from real mythology.
4: There may be hundreds of skulls at Akator, perhaps thousands. Whoever finds them will control the greatest natural force the world has ever known. Power and the mind on
3: that. You know, there are crystal skulls, you know, and there are large groups of people that believe all these things. So, could be true, could be not, we don't know. But um, the closer you can stick to real legends, the better the movie's gonna work, I think.
5: I hadn't worn the Indiana Jones costume for 18 years. And early in our production process, the costume was sent to my house for me to try on to see where we would have to change sizes. And and I put it on and uh, it fit like a glove. I felt really comfortable and ready to go.
2: The hat is great, the whip is great. Harrison looks great in the hat with the jacket, holding the whip.
3: You could take a still from each of the four movies of him in the hat and the coat, a full shot. And I don't think he'd be able to figure out which one was which, because he looks just like he did in all the other movies.
2: Isn't that great? Yeah, Something like this is, what this is what we need to release first. Okay. We start releasing what Harrison okay. looks like in the costume.
5: The whip came back pretty easily, too. I wasn't surprised because it's a relatively uncommon skill, and I was able to bring it back in a couple of weeks, of pretty diligent application.
2: We did a costume and makeup test on Harrison, and I had to kind of walk out of the light a few feet just at take a few deep breaths before going back to work. Because seeing him looking that good, it was kind of like, what happened to the last 19 years? How the heck did they go by that fast? My God, and that was scary. But it was also beautiful. And it was something we all shared together.
3: I think that's the interesting thing about this series is that because so many of us work together, Frank, who I'm now married to because we met on the First Raiders. Kathy and Frank. You know, they met on the first Indiana Jones, and then eventually got married. And Kathy's been working with Steven ever since. And you know, so this is like a, a reunion of all of us coming back together again after all these years. And and uh, it's been a huge amount of fun.
6: Steven really wanted this movie to be a surprise for the audience when they got to the movie theater. So it had to be kind of a secret. We had to do everything very carefully so the surprises didn't get out. So we had to name it another name and Steven chose the name Genre. So we went around the whole time being called Genre, not Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. This is a sunrise on the first morning in New Mexico. And here we go, caravanning our way to start shooting Indiana Jones 4.
2: So here we are again, 18 years later, how time flies, no <laughs> one's changed, we all look the same. But anyway, I'm really happy to be back on Indiana Jones, and, uh, oh, I can't say the title, okay? I just want to say, uh, you know, break a leg, have a good shoot, do your best work, and uh, here's looking at you kids. Cheers.
7: Cheers. Cheers.
2: Once the production began, it was like I had just finished the last film three years ago, and we were typically on to the fourth adventure. It just it like no time had passed at all. What happens is, or he can be taken, dragged a bit. He can be taken out of here, like this, and then he's thrown down to near the hat. Right. Well, you know, when our story begins, we find Indiana Jones in the trunk of a car. And that was George's idea. George said, you know, I'd love to introduce Harrison this time playing Indy in the trunk of a car.
3: And I said, that's fine by me. I thought it would be nice to have him trapped in the back of a car with another guy uh, and um, in a really desperate situation that we've grown to love with Indiana Jones. And it's, you know, a new step for introducing him. I thought after all these years it would be fun to do that and, and to do the unexpected. And cut. Good.
8: Stephen had a really, really beautiful idea of, of reintroducing Harrison ...through a means of creating Shadow of the Hat, ...which is a very iconic item of his wardrobe, ...which is really very much of a Steven Spielberg way of reintroducing or introducing characters.
5: He'll turn to you and he'll say Russians.
8: When I
9: first realized that I was actually in an Indiana Jones film, it was in New Mexico. When the camera goes onto the hat, the hand comes in, it picks it up... ...and you see the hat go onto his head, but it's the Shadow on the car. So the Shadow puts the hat on, and then Indiana Jones turns to the camera and goes, Russians. And I go, hey, whoa! ...you're in an Indiana Jones movie, you know, and that, that is
3: the spirit of it.
7: Hey, Mark.
3: Mark! We needed to get a really good villain, and we made the choice to go with a woman... ...and then once we did that, then it was a matter who would be the very best person... ...to create a really strong villainous character.
2: When Kate read the script, she immediately knew... ...what Spalco should look like, and so that was the character.
10: I had a look at yearbooks of people's high school photos in the 50s and I found uh, a couple of pictures, one of a Russian girl and one of an American girl with an incredibly short fringe and I just thought that that really emphasised the eyes. So that's in the end what we went with. I'd never actually met Harrison before the first day of shooting and so it seemed perfectly right that the first time I should meet him he would be in costume
2: director friends of mine who have worked with her said don't be surprised if she disappears into this character and they were absolutely right the minute i would say action bang she was Irina.
10: we will do this old-fashioned way you will tell us you will help us find what we seek and cut next shot thank you
2: That'll be nice if we'll be able to be back here with all this, and we'll see them arguing out the door. As tradition dictates, we find Dr. Jones teaching a class in archaeology, and along comes the dean of the school, sadly not Marcus Brody, who has passed on, but the new dean, who interrupts the class the same way Marcus Brody used to always stand there right by the door waiting for the class to end, and pulls Indy out and takes him into the hallway and basically tells him that he's been fired from the university.
8: What? Cut, print, beautiful, we got it.
6: We're shooting here at Yale University. It's kind of special to me because 25 years ago or so, we decided to call the college that Indiana Jones teaches at Marshall College. We're not real sure why it's called Marshall College. Actually, I am the dean of Marshall College, and I'm still developing sort of a history and a tradition and all the things that go along with having a wonderful uh, university. If you want to enroll, just let me know. I can probably
11: pull some strings and get you in. It was the first time I had come to set. You know, you're hearing all, what's it going to be like when you step in front of the indie cameras? And I think it did something for me where me and the stunties really got close. We bonded on that trip when we were out of town, all the stunt guys and girls. And then the month and a half of training that we had before, we went into the actual execution, all the stuff we'd been preparing for. And so it's
12: just our boys
13: in the front, right? I boys in
12: the front. We started off on a smaller bike, Bishai, and we just done a couple of days on this smaller bike. Yes, he's fine. And Then we put him on the Harley Davidson, which is 600 pound. It's a very heavy bike. So even if you get off balance, generally you're going to the floor because it is just so heavy. So we had, like, six weeks where we were like, with him every day, and it was just basically putting through the paces of each scene that we knew was coming up on the bike chase to get him to do as much as possible.
14: This is crazy! Somebody's gonna get hurt!
11: The bike was tough, only because when you have somebody moving on the back of a bike, it's very different than just having somebody hold you on a bike. But we're shooting a movie, and Harrison has to animate his character and we're on a bike through a lot of it. So a lot of it is the movement. All that stuff was pretty tough. We
5: shot in uh, Hawaii, on the north shore of um, the Big Island. Uh, doubling for the jungles of, uh, of Peru. Isn't it funnier if she says get down
15: and she goes, she goes down and we mm-hmm. yell get down and we cover the right.
5: Let's
1: try that. Let me see what that feels like. Sorry.
2: Get down! Get down! Well, that's good. That's good. That's nice. That's funny. <laughs> that's funny.
1: I had heard rumors that this film was in the works for years and years and years. So somewhere in the back of my mind, I thought, wouldn't it be great if, if they were going to do a fourth one? And wouldn't it be fantastic if they brought my character back into it? But um, I can't say that I really, you know, believed that that was going to happen. So I'm just, um, actually, I was at my studio one day, and the telephone rings, and I pick it up. And I hear somebody on the phone going, I've got Steven Spielberger on the line for you. And he said, I guess you know why I'm calling. And I said, no, I don't. And he said, what, don't, haven't you been watching television? Have you been reading the papers? And I said, no. And he said, we've just announced we're making the next one. And your character, you're going to be in it. We really want you to be in it. And I had sort of imagined maybe it would be a wonderful little cameo or something. but. He told me how, you know, what a major role he wanted my character and me to play in the film. And when I read the script, honestly, I was just like very, very moved by it, by, you know, what they had done with the character and the wonderful kind of repartee between them as they sort of you know mend fences and sort of realize that they still love each other and yeah i just thought it was beautiful honey you gotta stop we're gonna go off the cliff that's the idea
16: bad idea give me the wheel
1: trust me
6: back from Hilo and we're here in LA and uh, we're about to start our soundstage shooting Uh, we finished all the location shooting and I'm about to take off now to get that started. So now we're shooting here on the stages in uh, not-so-sunny Southern California. Actually it's kind of unusual because we're not just one studio we're at uh, four.
17: We've got about uh, 3,000 boxes here, uh, but that doesn't include the, um, the boxes that we have, which are uh, boxes grouped together. So, so actually built and designed as one huge group of boxes mounted on wheels, which means that we can move sets and set up uh, different scenes for Stephen very quickly. And uh, this is a huge moment. Really what's happening behind me here is the, this wall of boxes, which is uh, just a couple of, of uh, layers thick, is going to be smashed away as a vehicle uh, reveals itself. Of course, Indy's driving the vehicle. He's created absolute havoc in this space by this point in the chase. Uh, and so we're really prepping this for that for that stunt.
16: So once we had the vehicle where it would do what we wanted it to do, we set up breakaway crates and we put some large air cannons behind it. Um, most of the air cannons we use are in a 30, 40 gallon range. And what we did is we had two 500 gallon air cannons. They're really large. So as the vehicle hit the crates, we, Push the button on both air cannons and release all the compressed air, which blew the crates apart, blew the set dressing in the air, and the jeep comes through. And Harrison's sitting there. Then Harrison
4: drives off. I thought I saw something. Are you jumping at shadows?
5: I love being on a physical set, and um, Guy Diaz has given us extraordinary sets, the like of which I have, ne- in 40 years of doing this, I have never seen. The detail, the uh, interest that those sets have, is absolutely blows my mind.
7: Hot,
2: Play that one back,
10: please. Stephen knows exactly what he wants. And he and Harrison know this genre like the backs of their hands. So you know you know he, he really does have a nose for when things are going too far or also when you're not pushing it far enough.
5: That maker only sketched in a few lines. <laughs> oh.
1: Harrison and I have both fallen into quicksand, and Shia's character Mutt goes off in search of something to try to pull us out of the quicksand.
11: Stay there, I'll go get something to pull you out, all right?
1: And of course, being that we're in the jungle, the only thing that he can come up with, I guess there were no vines available, the only thing he can come up with is a a 13-foot snake.
4: And this is the snake. This is a Papuan olive python, and uh, this is the first time she's been on camera. I've had her about five years. She's 13 feet long. And it just keeps on coming.
0: <laughs> we'll
8: What's she doing in that jar? This is the way it travels in.
0: It's a snake.
4: It's not a rabbit. It's come not in a jar. Oh, hell. Just come
11: out. I'm not a big snake fan at all. Uh, I'm a I'm a dog person, you know, I don't mess with the rest of them.
4: And he's making some hissy noises. That's See, just what's saying. that about?
10: Just breathing. All right.
11: <laughs> he's a really sweet snake, actually. He was really a friendly snake. I mean, I don't know much about snakes, but the snake trainer told me he was very friendly.
0: He likes you a lot. All right, all right. That, yeah.
11: Well, he's this is he getting tighter up here
4: on the arm here. <laughs> I'm about done with this. Yeah. <laughs> she's very good-natured. Like most pythons, she's got a lot of teeth, and she kills by constriction, and she's a... Fantastic tree climber, and uh, she's also cannibalistic. She eats other snakes, so you keep your, all your pet snakes away from this one. Popping them in there. <laughs> all right, okay? Keep doing this, That's acting. And
5: then. I certainly have a respect for and an aversion for poisonous snakes, but uh, you know, I've never been afraid of snakes.
11: Grab the snake! Stop calling it that! What do you want me to call it? It's a snake! J Rope! What? <laughs>
7: <laughs>
2: Cut. It's amazing, Great. Right. One more time, right away. Here we go. Well, you know, Acator is a place we made up. There is no such place as Acator. But there is such a place as El Dorado, the city that Cortez, you know, was searching for, a city of gold. So we kind of loosely took that piece of history and mythology, if you will and combined it in a fictitious way with another place that would be the lure to bring adventure seekers to the scary lower depths of a rainforest in order to find a lost city.
17: This tunnel, which has these wonderful images on, leads to uh, an enormous circular rotunda uh, in which our main characters get attacked by the locals uh, of this area and uh, they basically uh, break out of the columns that surround the space and attack our characters as they make their way through the tunnels. But those panels themselves have all been made as very fragile breakaways, so we have to carry those things around very carefully, because there's approximately 14 hours' worth of work that's gone into each one of these panels, and one false move and they could break. So it's a very, very uh, nerve-wracking time. But they'll be shooting that scene this afternoon. Go, 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 run! Right Warriors,
2: go.
17: The natives will be chasing Indy and his group out and down the stairs and across a colonnade here. Action. Action. Once that's been completed, we'll remove that uh, series of entrances from the top of this set and it will begin to redress and become the top of the temple with the spiral staircase. At that point, the actors now will run in reverse through the colonnade and up the stairs. So it's kind of a bit of a jigsaw puzzle in terms of the scheduling, but we've made this enormous structure work for us in many different ways. And then, as you can see, there's an enormous hole in the middle of the set here. You can probably make out these four doors. They're all going to be enclosed in on a sort of an obelisk structure, which will probably stretch a a further 35 feet in the air from here, making this certainly one of the tallest sets I've ever worked on.
2: And cut! Good! The other day, we
17: shot
5: a door a door that that we were able to open uh, through a combination of our ingenuity and the psychic powers of the crystal skull. But the door was one of the most amazing things I've seen.
2: Watch a door.
5: A stone arrow descended into two cylinders and pushed them apart to where they rolled off the edge and two giant arms came down like this and the door began to open in sections. And it is incredible. One, two,
2: three.
5: I've never been a fan of Little Green Men, but this is an intriguing new uh, proposition. ...about an extraterrestrial visit to an ancient culture.
17: No more forever waiting. Well, this set has taken an extremely long time... ...simply because of the remarkable level of detail that the sculptors have given us. The little tiles, sort of hieroglyphs, each one of those actually symbolized a piece of a story... ...and uh, I believe there are about 4,000 of those tiles in this set. And uh, one of the sort of tongue-in-cheek things that we did was we actually made a couple of tiles, one of E.T. and the other of R2-D2 and C-3PO, really as part of a tradition in these Indiana Jones films. I think Norman Reynolds and his team had put uh, in Raiders of the Lost Ark some little images of R2-D2 and C-3PO in the famous snake pit that everybody loves, that famous scene. So I kind of felt I had to do something similar just to keep that tradition going, you know?
18: three more days to go and then we've done the movie it's been a great trip and my first job as a assist director was indiana jones and the last crusade and that's when i first got my union card as an ad in england working for david tomlin who was one of the great ad's and now i find myself you know as the first ad on indiana jones and the kingdom of the crystal skull so for me it's a very uh, emotional kind of feeling, and a you know, fulfillment of my career to be working on this movie with steven that's
2: fine that's okay that up. thank you
6: I think the climax of the movie was an amazing adventure for us to put together. It was really a sequence that involved so many elements and so many sets and so many people and so many different places that's really one of the biggest, if not the biggest, uh, sequence I've ever been involved in. Stop, 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 stop.
1: certain that we kiss at one point in the story in scenes that we have not yet shot it's a secret it's a secret
5: (laughs) really there's a big surprise at the end of the movie oh that'll be exciting
12: congratulations
15: you
1: may kiss your bride the wedding is in spring the beginning of the movie we're in fall we're in fall colors we're in fall garments and the wedding is in spring, so it's much lighter palette. And Marion wears a really great wedding suit
19: that we built for her and she looks fantastic in it.
5: I thought that was a great end. In- Didn't you think that was great? And the hat little hat deal that they did and Harrison you know, puts it on his head. That's what makes movies. That's what makes really good movies.
6: last day for a lot of the actors and a lot of the crew, and so we had our traditional last day toast right there on the set.
2: I just want to thank everybody for working so hard to make such a good picture, and I just have nothing but admiration for all of you. It was a long, but not a lonely road. You're you are you're a great crew. Everybody did an amazing job, and this is your movie, not just mine, not just Harrison's or Karen's or Jaya's or Jim's or John's or any... This is your movie, too. You brought back the fourth Indiana Jones. Thank you for that. <laughs>
10: So We will do this, what is the expression? Old-fashioned way.
6: In keeping with our desire to make the movie as close to the other three as possible, Stephen stayed on film for the entire process. In other words, we did not shoot uh, digitally, and we did not edit digitally. We edited on film, which is very unusual today.
3: By the time we're a week finished with shooting, Stephen will have the movie cut, and I'm always amazed at just how fast Michael is, he doesn't need to be cutting electronically because he's as fast as anybody cutting on Avid. I think I'd cover
5: my ears if I were you. I think the most difficult for me probably uh, for Stephen too was the, uh, was that truck chase in the, uh, in the jungle because that took a lot of intercutting.
2: It was the plain action stuff with the principals in the cars.
10: Oh, you fight like a young man. And
2: the second unit shooting be drugs and all of that, holy action. So those elements had to go together. And that was a lot of fun to do. It was a lot of work, but it was a lot of fun.
6: We had several members of the creative team back from the first three movies, and certainly one of the most important was Ben Burt, who was the sound designer and had worked on all three
2: movies. Ben has such a good ear for this. And Ben's been doing Star Wars pictures, he's been working at Pixar. I mean, he does stuff that defies the imagination, and he creates sounds you, like you've never heard before.
16: Well, because we've done three previous indie films, it's a well-established style and a well-established library of sounds and any new Indiana Jones adventure is going to use whips, guns, explosions. So, it's fortunate that we created a huge library for the first three films and that we can start with that as a basic foundation upon which then we can build, uh, you know, the sounds for the new movie. One of the first tasks I had was to really go back and gather all of the sounds together that had been created for the previous films and we hired my son Benny Burt to do that job because it meant going into lots of old tapes and older recording formats which are no longer used anymore and we wanted to go back to the original recordings wherever we could and digitize them now get the highest quality copy into the computer and then classify the sounds and get them all into a searchable database because there's really thousands of sounds. The whip in the current film, much of it is taken from our original whip recordings, but we actually did some new recordings as well. There's a big chase that happens
18: at Marshall College, and that was kind of one of the main things that I was dealing with. And there's lots of different vehicles throughout the film and in this particular sequence there's a couple mid-century American cars and then there's this motorcycle as well.
7: This is crazy! Somebody's gonna get hurt!
18: There's big crowds of students yelling and running, you know, the library involved, there's crashes and skids and all that fun stuff. Richard Hems, who's the uh, supervising sound editor, is uh, the resident car fanatic here, on uh, not only on the ranch, but on this particular show. So it was his job to go out, find the vehicles, and
16: record them. I've always wanted to do a big sword fight. When I think of the indie films, I always think of I want to give things a classic sound. So I go back and I think, what are my favorite films from the far past that had a great sword fight in it? And there's a film called The Adventures of Don Juan with Errol Flynn that has, I thought, some of the best sword fighting sounds in it. And so I searched around to find just the same type of rapiers that were used in that film. And when I found them, lo and behold, they sounded exactly like I wanted them to. The ants flowing across the ground is pretty much some sounds my son and I recorded pouring some corn feed that uh, is used to feed the animals it made a really good steady flowing sound, which we use for the ants in motion. To that you add a layer of constantly crunching eggshells, just in your you know in your hands, just crunch crunch crunch. <coughs> And then on top of that, you add some of human vocals that have been sped up and some of them are run backwards so that you get just a tiny sense of them being alive. And I think adjusting the amounts of each one of these elements can create this uh, attack of the ants. There's been a conscious choice to create the supernatural sounds as if maybe they were created for movies back in the 1950s and that's my department because those are the films that I saw as a kid. And I've tried to derive a style from those old movies, create new sounds in an old style. As an example, one of the little buzzing sounds that the skull makes is a sound I actually just heard in the parking lot. I went out to get in my car to go home and I could hear this buzzing sound and I realized it was a lamp post there in the parking lot and something maybe was wrong with the the lamp on top of the post and it made a really loud buzzing sound. So I thought, oh, that's interesting. So I had my recorder in the car, so I just recorded that sound right on the spot and have found a lot of use for that bad electrical lamppost sound as a prime element in the skulls themselves.
1: Andy, the eyes.
16: There's a transition at the climax of the film from what I would say organic, natural sound, which is as the temple falls apart, we are hearing basically earthquake sounds, thunder and rumble and cracking stone and falling debris. But as that happens, it reveals a unusual, very high-tech, somewhat alien environment, the interior of a giant device, a travel machine or something of this nature. And so the transition goes from natural, organic sounds to a very electronic sound.
4: What the hell is that? A portal! A pathway to another dimension!
18: There's a history of Indiana Jones and we're trying to stay true to the history of it because it's such a great franchise and I think the, the main goal is to, to keep with that spirit and, and keep it fresh, keep it new, but always have the, the link back to the earlier films. You're a A teacher? Part-time.
2: Talk about iconography. What really gives Harrison a lot of his esprit de corps is John Williams with that theme that he came up with. And Indiana Jones cannot exist without that theme. And of course, that theme would be nothing without Indiana Jones.
7: Jonesy!
2: So in the making of this picture, you'd hear the cast and crew whistling or humming this theme.
0: The initial presentations in in, in the first film, if I'm at all right, were probably not march-like, but more heroic in the sense of of energizing the character and creating a melody associated with Harrison's character. I think the emergence of it as a march was probably at the end of the process where I had to write an end credit for the film, and the theme seemed to lend itself to a kind of march presentation. (laughs) Music is principally a piece uh, that I've actually called it on the soundtrack album, The Adventures of Mutt, because the combination of his sword fighting and swinging on these vines and the heroics that he does, it, it refers in a little bit of a way to the Adventures of Robin Hood. Uh, the music is not similar, but only in the sense that it's a young hero's music in the tradition of the swashbuckler. <laughs> I think the reappearance of Marion in the film is a stroke of wonder. And I think some of the warmest scenes have to do with Karen's portrayal of Marion.
5: Oh, Marion, you had to go and get yourself kidnapped.
1: Not like you did any better.
0: As you can tell, I was a fan of hers from day one and enjoyed doing the the Marion theme from the first film and then relish the opportunity to bring it back to sort of paint it around and accompany her scenes and their scenes together don't ever do that again
4: yes dear
0: larina spalco presented to me an opportunity to create a, a sexy film noir if you like theme to accompany a femme fatale where you would hear a slithering saxophone and certain harmonic progressions that would depict this dark side of sensuality and and she's depicted musically with this if you'd like to say homage to the great film villainesses of the 1940s really beautiful she's not supposed to be sexy but
2: she is to me oh yeah well, i think she'll be to a lot of men in black <laughs> <laughs> she,
3: she's my kind of babe you
14: know and she would rule the world you know? exactly
0: Crystal Skull certainly, for its various appearances on the film, needed to have some musical identification. And what I tried to do was to try to get some kind of a homage, if you like, to the science fiction films of the '50s that would bring an aspect of nostalgia into this piece.
2: I want to just tell you that not only are you a blessing, but you're the only guy I know. ...except for one guy, who deserves to wear
7: this.
0: Working with Stephen is particular privilege. And we come back to the series with the original team... ...after 28 years. When you think about it, it's a remarkable thing. And this film is a very good illustration of that kind of very unique bringing together of people and collaboration and having it work so well after so many years.
2: I always feel a little bit self-conscious when I'm talking about imagery from the series of movies that have become kind of iconic, like the hat and the leather jacket and the whip and the Ark of the Covenant, the grail cup, and now the crystal skull, which becomes sort of symbolic for how desperate we are as filmmakers and storytellers to reach into the imagination of what really has existed in history and even in mythology and uh, bring that to a modern day audience. I mean, that's really fun, but it also just increases our sort of warehouse of interesting items that people have come to identify with the whole series of Indiana Jones stories.
20: We're in my uh my prop warehouse where everything eventually uh, finds its way to after we film it. And this is a table with a few of the props that we made for the movie. This is a decorative box that was called out in the script for Spelco as a boxed sword case. And uh, so we built this box from scratch and then we had one of our favorite upholsters to the interior.
11: And one, two, three. Wait, 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 stop, stop.
20: All the swords were made at Weta uh, Workshop in New Zealand. And these are the steel swords. This is the uh, rapier. Uh, This is Kate's uh, epee, which is a smaller attack sword. And we made a third sword just to balance it out. We made a long dagger for it. This gets carried around with her wherever she goes. She's in the jungle with it. It travels in one of the jeeps. Uh, Mutt eventually comes across it when he's looking for some kind of weapon and pulls out the rapier, and that starts a whole sword fight with her. This is a musical instrument that uh, we made for John Hurt. A friend of his had been given one by uh, a dignitary of India, and they're made in a small village in the south, and we went to great lengths to try and find One for him, we ended up making one for him, but it's a really cool, sort of makes, really interesting. But we took this out of a piece of bamboo and we painted it and engraved it and uh, added the little, these are just little washers that actually give it the sound. There's a letter that Mutt receives from Marion, his mother. And in that letter is a page with a lost language and all sorts of imagery on it that Mudd is asked to find uh, Indiana to see if he can help decipher it and come down and help him in Peru, help him escape. So this is a letter from her that we made. This is the accompanying page that comes with it. Here's the envelope that we made. We recreated all these stamps from the period from Peru. Indiana eventually goes to his library and pulls out a series of books We found a beautiful book and we recreated pages and then I had a bookbinder insert them into the book and so he opens it up, he starts to identify images in the letter and starts to decipher it and eventually makes notations in a small book of his. He also pulls out another book off the bookshelf which again we found, Stephen chose all of these books, He he just loved the exterior of these books, there's a clue about The Nazca lines. He's talking about the Nazca lines. So he goes to this book, and we've inserted these pages. Again, we had a graphic artist lay out the pages. Uh, We found some photographs. We touched those up in Photoshop, added them, distressed the pages, printed them on the same paper, and inserted them in the book. And then we did these illustrations of Akator and added those to the book uh, with all of the text.
2: So what we'll do is we'll push in, we'll be on a crane. crane, yeah. I'll be able to see the lines really well, and then we do the dialogue. Here's
20: some basic um, armor and weaponry accoutrement that were used in the movie. Spears, axes, blowpipes, some shovels, some tree trunks that Indy uses to smash over um, one of the Russians' heads. Uh,
19: go,
20: <coughs> With all of the props and weaponry that are action-oriented, we always make a real one and a rubber one and the rubber ones are used for uh, dangerous situations with the actors and we make, you know, everything from shovels to spears to blowpipes out of reel and rubber. It's, him. it's Oriana himself. Oriana's armor uh, was made at Weta. We basically gave them some Illustrations based on some original armor and uh they made this out of different kinds of material and painted it. We got three or four sets made of the exact same thing.
0: This is an incredible find.
20: We got from Lucas Archives from the past movies, we got a couple of his original haversacks which he wore, and we got a couple of whips and whip keepers. We ended up making new whips. We had them made in Australia and we basically distressed them down so they looked a little bit older than the original ones. We made 8 foot, 10 foot and uh, 16 foot whips. We made 5 or 6 haversacks matching the size, color, the width of the leather, the buckle, everything and then we distressed those down as well. And in the end we ended up using as his hero haversack one that we really liked, that was just kind of shredded and perfectly distressed from the archives. And that's the one that whenever we saw him close up with it, we always put that one on him because we loved that one. Got a knife? These were Mutt's two props throughout the movie. One was a switchblade that uh, is an Italian made, very classic 1950s switchblade and his comb. George Lucas pulled a comb out of his back pocket and said, let me show you what a comb looks like from the 50s. He said, he's carrying the same comb that he's had for like, you know, 10 years, 15 years, and it's in great shape. So he gave Mutt a few pointers on comb etiquette for the movie. That was George. Area 51, it's the big repository for the U.S. government's secret stuff. And so it's miles of boxes of things that they've done research on and experimented with and come across. As Spelko's men try and unearth the coffin, they throw a lot of crates out onto the ground. They smash open, and Stephen wanted to see some interesting, iconic, almost supernatural things in there, kind of like the Ark. So one of the things that we did was we recreated Moses' staff, and uh, it doesn't turn into a snake or anything. And it doesn't part the water. We went to the original movie uh, with Charlton Heston. We did a freeze frame on it, and we sculpted the, his original staff, and it's, it's over here. And this comes crashing out of this crate and reveals itself at one point. It doesn't look like much, but it's all-powerful, this staff. Now I'm bringing this one home protect mine. No. Of course, in the movie there had to be a cameo appearance uh, by one of the more iconic uh, props of the past movies, and that is, of course, the, the, the Ark. And this we brought down from Lucas uh, Archives, and uh, let me show you how it goes together. We did this in about 12 weeks and, you know, that's, that's a fairly short period of time considering we have to do the research, get the approval for each individual prop from Steven and uh, then manufacture or find them. We could be searching for an individual thing for weeks, and then we have to say, can't find it, we have to make it. We really hit the ground running, but it was really fun. Steven gets very excited. You can bring things into his office, lay them out, and he just gets really excited about it, and he's incredibly decisive about what he likes. So it makes the process just genuinely fun. It's great. Indiana Jones is an amazing project to be involved in. My entire department has just been thrilled to be a part of it. And yeah, I mean, if we can contribute something that becomes an iconic prop, we'll just be thrilled. It's just, uh, it's something for our kids to watch and something for us to watch with gratification. It's a huge movie, and yeah, we're so happy to be a part of it.
13: On Raiders of the Lost Ark, I was a model maker. I built uh, the Fire Canyon that, uh, where the Nazis meet their final doom uh, when the uh, flames come out of the Ark. On Temple of Doom, I was chief model maker, and I was responsible for creating sets for the uh, for the pit and friar. And then, on Last Crusade. I did some art directing, and I worked with the matte department. Um, The main shot that I remember is the uh, leap of faith when uh, Indy thinks he's stepping out into a chasm. He's actually stepping onto a a camouflaged bridge, and I created that. Now for King of the Crystal Skull, it's nearly all digital. I'm doing one small miniature set, but uh, everything else has been digital. Digital photography, digital matte painting, uh, 3D modeling and rendering and uh... so that's completely different too and um, the great thing is that it just keeps changing and and evolving
10: well, one of the, the first things we got to do which was the opening of the movie is the uh, the sort of the famous dissolve from the paramount logo into the sort of location that sort of sets the scene. And, you know, I mean, we first saw it as the animatic. And in the case of this film, it was a dissolve from the Paramount logo into uh, a, a prairie dog mound. And the, the dirt breaks away, the prairie dog comes out, looks around then jumps out the way as this vehicle comes and runs it over. And in, in the case of this shot, we, um, they had a practical plate they shot on location. And then we went and we uh, did some rough animation of this to sort of figure it all out. And then we did a stage shoot for the prairie dog mound itself on a blue screen collapsing away with a little blue mandrel pushing through. And then we went in and did the animation to that for, for the final sort of performance. So we actually, actually did have this, uh, this guy, which was nicknamed Buster. He's the, uh, the stuffed prairie dog who, uh, as you can see, is a little worse for wear. And he's been, you know, he's been soaked and blow-dried and cleaned. But he, he sort of provided sort of reference as far as lighting and scale. So they would shoot this guy just to help the guys with the fur and all that kind of stuff. And that's what also would end up in the movie.
21: first people to wander into the film uh, because we need to get the, you know, we call them assets sort of ready to flow up the pipeline early on. And uh, there's this infinite list of uh, of variables uh, that we need to focus on in order to get something uh, to hold together at the end of the day. And photo reference is a big help, not only for texture, uh, but for understanding how things put together and, you know, how they looked on the set. Once we've gathered sufficient reference so that we can start building these things, um, model making 101 really quickly is that forms in the computer are defined by lines and points and you can move those points and you can add more points and if you keep doing that for about two weeks you get a car (laughs) or in the case of this film uh, you keep moving those points around until you get dragon heads on top of stones with
22: some vases so after Dave and or Dave's crew creates the shape in the computer then it gets handed over to the paint department or the texture department as a gray box without all the wood and pictures on it. And so based on photo reference that are taken on set, it's uh, the texture department's job to put not only the color on there, but how bumpy is this? You know, wood has a different surface quality than a metal table does and things like that, whether it's shi- you know, super shiny chrome metal or painted car metal or things like that. And that's what we would apply to the models that the model department creates when those items move down the pipeline and get put into a shot they can be lit and have proper material qualities so they can fit right into a scene and then the compositors do their magic.
14: In the shot the crate that they're looking for has you know special properties and um, again those special properties are are not ones that you can establish in the, in the physical world so it falls on us to, to create that. First the, you know, the first things that you get is we start with nothing there, and then we tilt up, and um, we have the box, and as you can tell in this area, the set ends, so we flush out this environment, and the lights go miles and miles deep, and then we do treat it with um, haze, and then we have all of the special properties of the computer-generated chunks of stuff on the ground that are sort of wobbling along, and then the dog tags and gun straps, they all move in sort of a magical, magnetic way, and then this is the, uh, the final where We've obviously done a lot to create this, this world that obviously can't be achieved in the real world. Again, composing, that's, that's, our, um, that's the bread and butter, is um, taking work from other departments and, and you know, nudging a little further along to, to give it that sense of reality.
8: In this picture, we are doing a lot of miniature work, and that's for several reasons. Uh, One of them being that Steven Spielberg is very, and George Lucas too, is very careful about uh, how realistic the work that we do is. And to do certain things that have to do with pyrotechnics, nuclear explosions, uh, things that uh, need to have weight, we need to go the miniature route. And then complement that and supplement that with computer work.
12: Kerner Optical, they, they develop all the miniatures that we use throughout the movie, whether they're actually blowing the miniatures up or they're actually just building something that then later gets photographed to be put into the shot later. We have a, an example here of the, one of the models they actually made for us. This was for the temple sequence at the end of the movie. We asked them to build this particular miniature. We had it built on a Lazy Susan so it could be rotated by, by one artist and then photographed by another one. And then they would get the lighting right to match into the actual shot. Uh, and then we would bring that work back here to ILM and then place it into the actual painting. Um, we would also do a lot of close-up work as well for miscellaneous shots. So we would pull out some of the detail from the actual vines, some of the bricks as well, for placing later in the background. The plates were shot on location at Universal Studios, but it was about two stories tall and it needed to be about six stories tall. So we used the photographs that we collected from this particular miniature to extend the temple up another, another four stories. So here you can see the actual set as it was on Universal Studios. We have the blue screen back in the distance, and you can see that the actor's actually running onto the ground, so you, you know this set here isn't six stories tall. And then using the photographs that we got from the actual miniature at Kerner, shot in the, in the right sort of lighting environment, we reprojected that, those photographs onto CG geometry and then placed it into the shot and extended the actual temple. And obviously we put the mountain behind as well, and then later smoke was integrated and all the guys that were running out of the temple were rotoed out and placed over the actual extension at the bottom.
9: To get all of that stuff moving and churning and keeping that energy moving right at camera, the best solution that Steven and Pablo decided was to do that in miniature. Okay. This is a rocker mortar filled with aluminum oxide. It's basically a giant shotgun blast. And there's the camera right there shotgun full of aluminum pointed straight into the lens of the camera. We built eight scale houses that were all designed to be destroyed. Um, We set up a huge deck. Uh, Our neighborhood was something like 60 by 100 feet. Um, In that neighborhood would be multiple houses. So we had going up the street, you know, like 15 houses, something like that. Um, In the houses, we had 100-gallon air cannons that were designed and actually installed into the set by our effects supervisor, Jeff Heron. So the 100-gallon air cannons were providing a tremendous push with air. And along with some pyrotechnics and primer cord, we used big um, Volkswagen fans to keep the air moving and get a tremendous amount of push on this thing. So in the first shot, that's what happens. So we had to destroy the neighborhood in the first shot, and then we wiped the slate clean, and we brought in a whole nother set of houses for the high angle, which destroyed even more houses at one time um, for the big master wide shot. But when we have the thing coming down and destroying 15 houses at one time, we had the ability to only do this one time. So that was a very, very stressful uh, situation.
22: How you doing, Bubba? Uh, last wire, boss. on?
9: That footage is handed over to ILM because our nuclear wave was confined to the sort of the width of the street and the houses combined, okay? It was enough for us to create that much energy. But if you're looking at a shot like that, the band of energy coming at us would be, you know, all the way side to side. So ours was working in the middle and they have extended it digitally, in addition to the DigiMap background.
15: We were given an animatic that had placement, general size, and this is the the plate that we received to work with, and we were told that the bare uh, part of the screen was was meant for the nuke, and we were left to match it with our realistic-looking boss. <laughs> and you can see we had to basically remove the sky, replace the sky, add quite a bit of debris and dust and flame to the ground, and of course, the giant nuclear explosion.
17: One thing about the jungle is that it was interspersed between the real location stuff in Hawaii and then with our visual effects shots. Now, the good news was we had reference. The bad news is we had reference because we had to match it and had to look like that. So that made our job a lot more difficult. So we had what we call the bowling alley effect. You had the road, you had the verticals, and it was all cleared out in between, so it looked like a bowling alley, just a straight shot. The idea is we had to bring the jungle in and close everything down to make it claustrophobic, to, to sell it to the audience that they are driving through the jungle, they're not on a road.
12: We've given the directs the freedom to go on location and shoot in a safe environment. For him to actually get the the atmosphere, the wind, the noise, the the bugs in the air, everything that that, that really tells the viewer that this is a real dangerous location, but then take it back to ILM and actually enhance uh, and make it just a little bit more dangerous. So it really does give the the director the freedom to go and shoot wherever he likes and knowing we can always come back to ILM and, and add that element of danger that he couldn't necessarily do on location. We couldn't very well be shooting
22: at and, and hooking up all the pyro when you have the, the talent right next to the to the bushes they're driving by. It's a little bit dangerous, so that's when we go to the stage. We will take a, a couple of days and go through and just get the pyro crew and and do a bunch of different versions, that kind of get the different feeling depending on where you're at. So then we have the the bullet hits on the trees that we were adding in to make it to make it look like all these explosions so that they're actually shooting at the characters but you want to get the fall off the lighting correct from based on the plate and all these little things that you don't really think about until it goes into actually blending it into the plate and making it feel like it was all shot at one time.
2: On this movie, what the script required was something that we couldn't ever capture, corral, and direct. So for the first time, breaking the tradition of practical creepy-crawlies, ILM had to provide
3: the creepy-crawlies for uh, Crystal
1: Skull. What? Big damn
5: ant! go!
3: The ant sequence has always been there. Ever since the very, very beginning, the very first draft, we had the ant sequence. It was even in a script for uh, Last Crusade that was actually done about the Monkey King in Africa which had this army getting thrown into the pit with the ants and having them eat them and all that sort of thing. So that's an old idea that sort of managed
10: to migrate through all of the drafts. And here it became more animation working in conjunction with the simulation team to figure out a way of creating just crowds and crowds of, of, of ants. So again, the, the process begins looking at reference and then doing some animation tests to help show how these things would, would move. And from there, we provided some basic animation cycles, just repetitive walking, stopping actions that get plugged into this sort of engine that allows hordes and hordes of ants to be created. And then on top of that, we would keyframe animate specific ants for various shots. There's a sequence where, uh, where Spalco is pointing a gun at Indy and an ant crawls through over a hand and then bites her. And that individual ant would be keyframe animated. But then in a wide shot, where you just see Tens of thousands, they would all be handled through simulations.
22: The crowd system is how we control the ants. Um, You can't animate each one by hand individually, so you assign behaviours. And the behaviours for these guys were generally head in this direction, but we added things like hesitation, um, and uh, they would chase after certain characters, and they would stack on top of each other, uh, which was something new that we did for the film. So um, we had some really challenging shots where ants needed to be crawling all over the characters. And for those, we would take our uh, CG version of the character and do a match animation to what the actor did. And that match animation had to be so tight and so specific that the ants would stick exactly where we would put them on the plate.
2: Don't move your head at all. Ah! Ah! Don't freeze. Screaming. Got
15: it. Good.
7: Go.
15: Ah. So this is kind of one of the main bad guys. Uh, and this is some of our early tests of, of being able to stream ants up and over him into his mouth. And in the end, you just end up with enough of his face to, to kind of recognize him throughout the, the entire shot.
7: Three, two, one, action!
19: he was uh, rigged up with a bunch of wires and was pulled up into this mound. And one of the most difficult parts was trying to figure out how do we get all the ants to uh, react in such a way that it looks as though they're pushing him up from underneath. And as he's you know, swinging around, uh, whether we have ants kind of coming off his body or other ones kind of filling in the gaps where his legs are, um, all that had to be choreographed to figure out how best to move him from one point to another.
2: So I just worry that are there too
8: few ants leading this charge. Okay. Well, take a look at your own film. If you still feel that way then then we'll uh we'll increase the amount maybe by I'll dollars or you know. something like
2: that. Yeah. Okay. Can, we could just cut this into the other dot raiders documentary. Remember where I said we need seven thousand more snakes? I could yeah. say, you know, we need about a hundred and forty thousand more ants. <laughs> just enough there's just not enough ants. You know, at the forefront of the shot.
10: We would get together with uh, Stephen on a, on a weekly basis to re- review our work via a conference calls, like a video conference calls every week. And it was actually uh, in a meeting once that Stephen suggested this idea that if the room was spinning, it could be like one of the skulls would stop, one of the skeletons would stop, and all the others would form in. And with each one kind of intersecting, it would form out this alien that would then eventually come out of its chair.
4: A portal! A pathway to another dimension!
2: Don't think we want to go that way.
8: I think one of the most challenging things that we as visual effects artists have to do is the destruction of the temple at the end of the film. is basically taking the temple and converting it into into particles. Um, And so we had to do a lot of research and development into that. It's not just Particles that uh, you know turn into water or dust or fire—it's is behaving in a specific way, and it has to be completely realistic.
19: Particle simulation um, uh, is basically a lot of tiny little um, pieces which uh, have fields which are applied onto um, these little things. Say it's a rock, or say it's um, a bunch of uh, debris, and uh, basically we give. Uh, Field, we pass fields through the these uh, particles or these objects uh, say it's like a hurricane force wind or a bunch of gravity and uh, the objects react uh, in a certain way to start moving uh, the way that we want it to
21: and in the case of this film it's not enough that these things break apart as individual stones the stones themselves have to break apart um, so this all needs to be split up into tiny pieces um, what we're looking at here is a small portion of the antechamber um, and by the time you spread all that out and fill the room. Um, We had about 8,000 individual parts in this one set, uh, which included about 50 to 60 of the artifacts um, of the room and all the architectural uh, details. The the largest set we built, the Temple Heart set, has 34,000
22: pieces. (laughs) So we built a lot of bricks and uh, covered them inside and
12: out all the way around. The script and the animatic had everything being sucked up into this hole, and at one point it was going to be like a black hole, and we thought it would be a little more fun to make it functional, looking like something working in the ship. Um, So we came up with this blender concept, and it looks kind of, we've been calling it the garbage disposal, and uh, and it basically inhales the entire throne room to to get rid of that and reveal the ship. And uh, the spaceship was the biggest design element that we had to tackle. We wanted to give it an Area 51 B-movies, kind of 50s vibe, so that it had a kind of vintage feel. And here's our uh, spaceship taken off. But uh, yeah, it's a massive undertaking to fill in those blanks.
4: Part of the crater is holding back this immense lake and there's an event that causes the walls of this crater to crumble and uh, the lake to burst through and then fill the crater valley and, and hide the temple and its remains uh, beneath this lake. Usually, you know, if we're doing water, people say if you do it under a certain scale, say like quarter scale or even sixth scale, after that it just doesn't look right because water is water and you can't really change its physical properties obviously too much and how it reacts but we built this model at 24th scale because in fact the cliffs were meant to be you know roughly 500 feet tall and what we did was we just build sections of it to have the water action the cliffs crumbling away but one of the things that helped us on this was that the camera was actually very far away about 100 feet away when we filmed it. So you never got a real close-up view of the water interacting with our set, but when it had to crumble apart, it had to have weight to it, and it had to be able to somewhat withstand the force of the water long enough, at least for all the water, to break up. But CG was then going to put it all together in a big, giant, matte painting, So what you actually see in the movie is much larger than what we built.
8: You know, a lot of the work that we're doing is groundbreaking, you know, uh, particle simulation work that couldn't be done two years ago. And it's all this effort, great team effort uh, that we've been working on for the last couple of years. Uh, You know, like I said before, I mean, I never... I never stress when I do a project like this because I always know that the kind of people that we work with over here at LM are great and they're funny, uh enjoy to work with, you know, every morning I, I you know, get up just to come to the just to take a look at uh, the stuff that, that we do, you know. Excellent. Well this is the guy this is all
2: fabulous. Thank you. This is fa- fantastic right. stuff. Okay, okay, thank you. Bye. 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 Okay, let's go
7: downstairs and we just